You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters because accounting matters. On today's episode, Adam and I were joined by Julie Avalanet, a senior manager on the Embark quality team, which means she works with Adam. Every day, these two work closely together on all things technical, so our listeners are in for a treat as we turn our attention to lesser considerations under ASC 842. Throughout the podcast, you'll hear a lot about how this standard aligns with other technical accounting topics like ASC 606 and even CECL, which is why we brought out the technical big guns for this one. We hope you enjoy the conversation and learn something new. This is Sarah Cage Richter, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's National Quality Leader. And we also have Julie Avalanet, a senior manager who is on Adam's quality team. They are here to give us the technical scoop on lesser considerations under ASC 842. And I feel like lessees get all of the attention when it comes to 842, and for good reason, but... Like the middle child in the family, sometimes the other kid needs some attention. (laughs) So we're going to focus our conversation on lessors today. With that said, Adam, can you give a quick overview of lessor accounting under 842? Yeah, sure. So, you know, ASC 842 really did not make extensive changes to the existing Mm -hmm. lessor accounting, um, which I think is very helpful for most lessors. They're having to do less work. Um, but you know, there are a few things that, you know, definitely did change, but you know, classifications are the same. They still have the three types of classifications. You got a sales type lease, you've got direct financing or an operating lease and the accounting for, you know, operating sales type and direct financing leases are essentially the same, you know, as far as, you know, lease income recognition and whether or not you do recognize the leased asset or not, none of that has really changed where they did make pointed improvements. Um, I would say in the lessor guidance, it was either to, um, you know, mirror the, you know, changes that were done for lessees. So whether it's defining certain lease concepts, uh, maybe clarifying if there was some ambiguities in um, ASC 840 or also to align with the new revenue standard, ASC 606. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk a, quite a bit today where there's areas where changes were done and it was, you know, directly to help, you know, align with how accounting works under ASC 606. Yeah. So there's a lot of consistency for lessors, but what are some key areas that have changed that you could highlight for some lessors out there? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. You know, so we opened up with saying there haven't been a lot of changes, but there are five kind of key areas I do think of um, when it comes to lessor accounting where there are impacts um, under 842. So the first one's around lease classification, not specifically the types, but you know, we'll get a bit more into that. Um, allocation of consideration in the contract, how that might work under 842, mm-hmm. um, accounting for initial direct costs, some changes around that. Um, there's a lot of collectability guidance um, that lessors need to be aware of under 842, so we'll talk at length about that. And then I think one of the biggest ones, especially if you know you are a lessor and you've been kind of following um, the FASB and what they're doing around this, but um, you know lease contracts with like extensive variable lease payments and how that imp- impacts lessor accounting and some of the recent changes there. So I'm sure you're going to want to do a deep dive into all of these because I've been through this a few times with you, I would say. <laughs> yeah, this is your first rodeo. So let's start with your first point, which was lease classifications. We have the same types of classifications, the operating, sales type, and direct financing, but we go through different tests and thresholds now. They've kind of changed some of those. So could you talk through how that guidance is applied for lessors? 
Yeah, so let's um, let's look at the classification test just to help maybe set the stage. So there's kind of two sets of tests that lessors apply. There's like the part one test, which is really determining whether or not um, the lease from a lessor perspective would qualify as a sales type lease. And these are very similar, you know, shouldn't say very similar. They are the exact same test that lessee apply when they're trying to determine whether or not they have um, a finance lease or an operating lease. So you've got your transfer of ownership test. You've got your... Uh, purchase option, lease term considerations, you know, the lease payments test, um, as well as the, you know, specialized asset test, kind of the newer test they added in there. So, you know, lessors go through those same tests and evaluate them. Mm -hmm. Um, If they meet any of those tests, the lease would qualify as a sales type lease. And those tests are really intended more or less because to end up with the result where you do have a sales type lease, because meeting any of those tests really is you know, saying to a lessor that the lease contract was structured very similar economically to a sale itself. Mm-hmm. And so you really should account for it as a sales type lease. Um, if none of those five tests are met, then you kind of go into this like part two kind of set of tests to figure out whether or not um, the lease would qualify as a direct financing lease. Um, if it doesn't, then obviously, you know, the catchology end up in operating. But The direct financing lease criteria is really focusing there more so on credit risk and whether there's been kind of a transfer of the risk in the lease to credit risk. So if that is the case, you end up with a direct financing lease and then obviously absent that, you're just left with operating lease accounting. I think the saddest thing about this is that (laughs) I remember studying for the CPA exam and Tim Garrity had a great little acronym for this. And I trust that Tim has come up with a new one for these. No no doubt. Yeah. But I just, that was so helpful for the tester. I can't remember what it was, but it got me through the CPA exam. (laughs) It's important. Okay. So we have our basis for classification under 842. Where could lessors see some changes or impacts to how they accounted for things previously? Yeah, so the biggest one is kind of when you do your classification test. So this is true for lessees or lessors. Um, So lease classification determination is at lease commencement under 842. Originally, it was done at lease Mm -hmm. inception. So that's kind of the overarching change. Um, A couple other areas where there's been changes in maybe the way you apply some of those tests is um, the first one is around kind of the existence of manufacturer or dealer profit or loss. Mm -hmm. So historically for a lease to qualify as a sales type lease, you know, there had to be the presence of kind of manufacturer or dealer profit or loss. That is no longer required um, under ASC 842 that there has to be, you know, the presence of profit or loss at, at or I'm sorry, at commencement in order for it to be a sales type lease. So, that being said, you could also have, um, you know, leases that don't meet any of those five classification tests mm-hmm. that do have a bit of profit um, built into the contract that could qualify as a direct financing lease, which is kind of unusual if you think about the historical way we accounted for those leases before, you know, the fair value of the underlying asset had to kind of equal the lease payments in order for it to be a direct financing lease. No longer the case. So there could be some differences in classification because of that alone. Um, The other one is around collectability uncertainties around minimum lease payments. Um, So this is particularly true around um, sales type leases. So historically under ASC 840, if if collectability uncertainties existed, oftentimes people would classify those leases as lessors, um, as operating leases. Mm -hmm. That is no longer um, a factor that gets applied. So you know, lessors could essentially have leases that do have 
you know, collectability issues and there's, you know, different guidance on how you handle that under 842, um, that would now be sales type leases where historically they may have been operating leases. Uh, and then the last couple I would probably, you know, point out here, one is around real estate leases. So real estate leases under 840, you know, kind of had very specific guidance, you know, for example, in order to qualify as like a sales type lease, you know, for a real estate lease to qualify as a sales type lease, I should say, um, there had to be kind of a transfer of ownership at the end. That was like, you know, a catch all that had to be there. Um, that's no longer required. They basically just apply the same tests. There's no specific guidance um, directly just for real estate leases. Yeah. They follow the same framework that we have for all other leases. And then the last one I'd close out is just leverage leases. So this was eliminated under ASC 842. Um, so there's no concept of leverage leases for new leases under 842. But I will say if you have an existing leverage lease under 840, um, you are grandfathered in to continue to account for that lease as a leveraged mm -hmm. lease, you know, post adoption. Uh, the only thing to keep in mind is if that lease was ever modified or changed um, after the adoption of 842, you would no longer be able to apply leveraged lease guidance. I have a bonus question. Sure. Does Cecil play into the collectability for sales type leases? It does. Okay, we have a Cecil episode if you want to know about that. I was just thinking about, you know, you put that long-term receivable on your books, and so there has to be something with that collectability to... Yeah, and we'll, I know we'll, we'll touch on collectability a bit more, but yeah, we'll, we'll get into a bit about, you know, if you've got a lease receivable, um, yeah. you know, what you need to think about as it relates to potentially any, you know, collectability issues. It all works together. That's the beauty of accounting. <laughs> What about expedience around classification? Do those work the same for the lessees at the transition date? Yeah, they do. So, you know, similar to like what lessees have, they've got that package. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, if a reporting entity adopts the package, they have to apply it to all leases, whether they're lessee or lessor. So, you know, part of that package was you kind of carry forward that lease classification um, for existing leases. So whatever you had it classified under 840 you would carry forward under 842. Um, but obviously, kind of keep in mind that new leases you enter into, you kind of have to go through this new, uh, you know, the guidance that we kind of just talked about as far as applying that, applying those classification tests. Okay, so I think that covers our lease classification. Next on the list of key changes was the allocation of consideration in a lease. Uh, mm -hmm. Julie, what should lessors look out for here? Yeah, so first I want to level set by saying that allocating the consideration in a lease is no different for lessees and lessors. Mm -hmm. That's good. And <laughs> um, that being said, the first step would be to determine all of your lease and non-lease components that exist in the arrangement. And then you figure out how you're going to measure and allocate the consideration in the contract among the different components and account for them separately. Now, the process of allocating that consideration under 842 mirrors the transaction price allocation guidance under 606, which is under the relative standalone price basis, whereas under 840, it mirrored the multiple element guidance under 605. So with these allocation methods, they can vary depending on the circumstances of the arrangement, especially when there's bundle discounts, variable consideration, and also the, the guidance under 606. Sounds pretty complicated. And I know that there's yeah. an expedient for lessees that they can take when combining a lease and non-lease component, the non-lease components uh, to simplify some of that accounting. Because yep. like I said, sounds very complicated. <laughs> Do lessors get the same option? 
They do. Uh, however, they can't necessarily apply it to all of their leases like a lessee can. They have to meet two conditions in order to combine their lease and non-lease components. The first condition is that the timing and the pattern of transfer of the non-lease component and the associated lease component must be the same. And also the standalone lease component would be classified as an operating lease if it were accounted for separately. Mm -hmm. um, so if you elect that practical expedient and you combine the non-lease component and the lease component, then how you account for that single combined component would depend on additional facts and circumstances. You'll want to consider, you know, which component is actually more predominant in the arrangement. If the non-lease component is more predominant, then you would account for the whole combined component under 606, whereas if the lease component was more predominant, you would account for it under 842. Okay, so you mentioned two conditions that need to be met. So let's look at each one of those. The first one you mentioned was the timing and pattern of transfer is the same. Yep. What does a lesser need to evaluate here to meet this condition? So two things here, a non-lease component must meet one of the criteria under 606 to be satisfied over time rather than at a point in time. Mm -hmm. And also that non-lease component must have a straight line pattern of transfer to the lessee. So usually this means that the component, or if you think about it in the context of 606, the performance obligation would be satisfied using a time-elapsed measure of progress. The FASB actually said that even arrangements that include the sale of consumables with leased equipment couldn't apply this practical expedient if the consumables are transferred at a point in time versus overtime, even in cases where the consumables uh, will be used with the leased equipment over the entire lease term. So it's very important that they meet those two conditions. Okay, so let's say that we've met condition number one, and I believe that the second condition was about the standalone lease components. So how does an entity determine which component is the predominant one in the arrangement? So everyone's favorite answer depends. It requires <laughs> some judgment, which 842 allows for more judgment here. Um, so there's no quantitative test or threshold that's used to determine which component is more predominant. Uh, the FASB expects that most entities will be able to qualitatively determine which component is more predominant. So some things you could ask yourself as a lessor are, you know, how does the customer view the arrangement? Is the non-lease component more significant than the lease component in the customer's eyes? Another question to ask is, you know, how are you as a lessor entity selling and marketing that arrangement? Another question is, you know, what kind of costs are being um, incurred to fulfill mm -hmm. these components and are more costs being incurred for one component over the other. Makes sense. If a lesser elects the expedient to combine their components on qualifying leases and those leases have variable payments, yep. how are those accounted for? Yeah, so again here it depends. It depends on which component is more predominant if the non-lease component is more predominant, then you know all your variable payments, including any variable lease payments, would all be accounted for under 606. Whereas if the lease component was more predominant, then all your variable payments for the goods and services, including any variable lease payments, would all be considered variable lease payments under 842. So it sounds like people need a good understanding of 606 and 842. Yeah, for sure.
So the third key change that Adam mentioned was initial direct costs. How is the accounting for these different for lessors? Yeah, so 842 actually provides a more narrow definition of what an initial direct cost is, and this applies to both lessees and lessors the same. Uh, under 842, initial direct costs only include those incremental costs that are incurred if the lease is obtained. Under 840, you could capitalize incremental direct costs to obtain a lease even if they were incurred before the lease was obtained. Uh, so with this change in the definition, some costs, so think like legal fees, your allocated internal costs like salary, uh, all of those costs that an entity was able to capitalize as an initial direct cost under 840 will now be expensed as incurred under 842. Mm -hmm. um, for some lessors, this might result in recognizing more expenses before the lease even begins. And uh, it'll also result in higher margins on those lease incomes over the lease term. What was the rationale for narrowing that definition of initial direct costs under 842? Yeah, so this again was intended to try and align the new lease standard with the new revenue standard. Mm -hmm. And so when 606 was rolled out, the FASB also updated the guidance for the related costs to obtain a contract uh, in ASC 340. And 340 says that contract costs uh, should only be recognized for incremental costs to obtain a contract that wouldn't have been incurred if the contract had not been obtained. So that's the same concept for initial direct costs under 842. And you mentioned a few examples, but do you have any more examples of typical initial direct costs that we might see? Yeah, so you want to think about you know commissions that are incurred that are based on an incentive, mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily commissions that are just part of a salary, right? You also would think about regulatory or lease filing fees that are incurred after the lease has been executed, uh, legal fees that are contingent only upon a successful lease being entered into, um, think about lease termination fees for existing tenants and Another one would be, you know, consideration that you pay to a third party for a residual value guarantee. All of those would only be incurred if a lease had been obtained. And I know the answer to this one, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it anyways, because <laughs> I like these. Any expedients here to help with the transition? Fortunately, yes. Um, similar to the discussion that we had over classification, that package of practical expedients allows an entity to not reassess their initial direct costs. So... This means that at transition for any existing leases, if you previously capitalized an initial direct cost, you don't have to reassess it to see if it meets that narrower definition of under 842. You know, we love those expedients. I think next on the list, we had collectability. And we previously touched on collectability when we walked through the classification and how uncertainty there doesn't always result in an operating lease anymore for lessers. But Adam, how else does collectability impact lessers under 842? Yeah, so let's look at collectability from the standpoint of once you know your classification, how it could then impact maybe the, the subsequent accounting for that yeah. lease. So let's take sales type leases to start. So if collectability is not probable at lease commencement, um, you would not recognize any day one profit or loss. Instead, you would defer recognition of that that you know sale until that collectability becomes probable at a later point in time. So this is quite frankly, going to require less sores where they have situations like this to continually monitor whether or not those, mm -hmm. those leases become collectible at a later point in time. And this was purposeful. Um, it's really, you know, intended to also, we've mentioned 
it mirrors 606 for this or that. This is another situation where, you know, they put this collectability guidance in there to align with 606. And the FASB was purposeful for that because they didn't want people to try to um, structure contracts in a certain way where they could try to circumvent the collectability guidance in 606 and make them sales type leases because sales type leases were more forgiving. So what they did is essentially said, no, 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 we're going to have the same collectability guidance. If it's not probable, you shouldn't recognize any income. So how would they account for the sales type lease if they don't recognize the sale then? Yeah, so if there's not a sale to record, the lessor is obviously not going to de-recognize the leased asset. So they're going to keep that on their books, continue to depreciate that asset. It would still be subject to ongoing impairment. Um, so likewise, there's going to be no net investment in the lease. Um, any payments that the lessor might receive. So I know we said they collectability was not probable, but maybe the lessee is making some payments. Yeah. Um, those are more or less just considered deposits, lessee deposits. So it's going to be some type of liability. Um, that's going to sit on your books and they'll sit there for a while. You know, it's either going to sit there until collectability becomes probable, the lease terminates and those payments are non-refundable, um, or if they are refundable, then they'll get sent back to the lessee. So it kind of just depends on the circumstances. Um, you know, if there are any initial direct costs associated with the lease, you know, those typically are just going to be expensed, you know, at the original lease commencement date. Um, and, you know, the lessee would also not recognize any interest expense um, on that deposit liability. It's essentially just going to sit there. I'm guessing it's not our risk-averse accounting friends who are entering into these collectability <laughs> day one right. type transactions. Um, so what happens to the deposit liability if the lease receivable never becomes probable of being collected before that lease is terminated? Yeah, so it's going to depend for sure on the circumstances. So if, let's say that there's lease payments that are non-refundable. So if the lessor, you know, the lease terminates, the payments are non-refundable. At that point in time, the lessor could de-recognize that lease liability um, for those lessee deposits. And they would essentially just reverse that into income. Um, this could also be the case if, you know, the, the lessor repossessed um, the leased asset so they took it back and there was no further obligations under that lease. You know, at that point in time, if there was still a, a lessee deposit liability on the lessor's books, they could also unwind that and recognize it into income. Um, like I said, you know, if, if this is the case, you know, that leased asset is still going to sit on their books. So like I said, they have to depreciate that asset. Um, it's still continuing to be reviewed for impairment if necessary. Um, it's just really like, what do we do with this liability account? What happens if lease payments are probable of being collected at commencement, but subsequently there's a decline in credit worthiness or a global pandemic hits the world and uh, the lessee uh, might not be able to pay anymore. So those assumptions have changed. Yep. How does that work? Yeah. So for all leases, um, a lessor does not reassess classification um, unless the lease is modified. Um, or the, and the modification is not accounted for as a separate contract. So if there are changes in collectability after lease commencement, it's not going to impact classification. So classification has already been set. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I guess an example here would be that if you have a lease that's classified as an operating lease at commencement solely because it's not considered collectible, you know, whereas if it was collectible, it would be a direct financing lease. If that lease down the road all of a sudden becomes probable of being collectible, you, you wouldn't change the classification of that lease to a direct financing lease. It's still an operating lease. 
Um, you would then apply the collectability guidance for operating leases to figure out how you would account for um, that change in collectability. Um, so that's important to kind of keep in mind is that it doesn't impact classification for, for any of the lease, um, lease accounting itself. Um, and like I said, for, if collectability is probable at the commencement date for a sales type lease, you know, the, the lessor doesn't have to reassess if that collectability changes. It's only, you know, if that collectability is not certain at um, the commencement date would a lessor have to, yeah. you know, continually monitor it. Instead, what happens if collectability shifts after the sales type or after commencement of the sales type lease, um, it really becomes kind of what you were alluding to here with, you know, CECL or if you have an adopted CECL, kind mm -hmm. of that incurred loss model. But, yeah. you know, whether or not there needs to be some type of reserve or whatever for those lease receivables because of that change in collectability. I jumped the gun earlier on CECL. <laughs> Well, that's a great segue. We mentioned operating leases a few times there. So are lessors operating leases impacted by collectability? They are. So a lessor's pattern of recognition of lease income um, could be impacted by collectability. So let's just start with the easiest one. So if collectability is probable at commencement, you know, everything's hunky-dory. So it's mm -hmm. just like you recognize lease income generally on a mm -hmm. straight line pattern over the lease term, no issues there. Um, however, if collectability is not probable, then um, you know the lease income that a lessor can recognize is going to be limited. And so there's a limit that's based on the lessor of two things. So it's either the income that would have been recognized um, if collectability was probable, or it would just be the actual cash like lease payments received. So it's almost like a cash basis um, way of viewing it. So you look at which of those two would be the lesser and that's that's your cap as far as what you can recognize yeah. for, for lease income. Um, and so that being said is that, you know, we mentioned that for sales type leases that um, a lessor only has to monitor collectability if it's not probable at commencement. Mm -hmm. If it is probable at commencement, they don't have to worry about changes in collectability after the fact. It only impacts the, the reserves. It's different for operating leases. So whether or not it's probable or not probable at commencement, um, lessors do have to monitor ongoing collectability because if there ever is a change, then that cap could come into play. All right, so on that note, what happens if there is a change in collectability over the lease term from lease commencement? Yeah, so let's look at it in kind of twofold here. So if it is no longer probable, the collectability, so the lease all of a sudden becomes troubled, um, and the cumulative cash receipts that have been received on the lease are less than the income that's been recognized to date, then that excess income would have to be reversed. Um, on the flip side, if collectability changes back to probable, let's say things improve down the road, then any difference between the lease income that would have been recognized mm -hmm. if collectability had always been probable yeah. Um, and the actual lease income that's been recognized to date um, as current period lease income would be, you know, recognized in the, in the contract itself. Um, probability in the context is assessed, you know, obviously based on the credit standing of the lessee. So a couple things here to keep in mind is if there are just general disputes about maybe variable lease payments or things of that nature, um, that shouldn't impact a lessor's like determination of whether or not something's probable of being collectible or not. That makes sense. And it's usually straight line that causes that difference between cash receipts and recognized revenue. Right. That seems like such an odd concept that you would have recognized more revenue than you received. But I think that's yeah. that straight line 
that is really hard to understand until you see it. Yeah, <laughs> so for sure. You know, a lot of leases have those like escalating mm -hmm. payments or just, yeah. you know, payments are all over the place on different years or different periods. And so, you know, under GAAP, obviously for operating leases, you still have to recognize um, income on a straight line basis mm -hmm. in those cases. And I'm getting excited because variable lease payments is coming up. I'm, I'm jumping the gun. <laughs> what about operating lease receivables? Are reserves still appropriate for those as was the case under ASC 840? Yeah, so ASC 842 really doesn't go into the guidance um, on how to like apply valuation of operating lease receivables. Um, instead, you know, for a lot of people, ASC 310, which was kind of the original mm -hmm. like incurred loss receivables standard itself, um, indicated that if you had something that was in not in the scope of other topics, then you could turn to the contingency guidance in ASC 450. Um, and this would even be the case for those that have adopted CECL because um, operating lease receivables are not in the scope of um, CECL either. It's only mm -hmm. sales type um, receivables there that are in scope. So this would also be the case there. So ultimately what the FASB said is that if you still want to create some type of like general reserve for your operating lease receivables, that would still be okay. Um, it would need to be some type of accounting policy election that the entity would make. And then obviously you disclose that. Um, and, you know, that would be recorded either as a reduction of revenue or as, you know, bad debt expense, depending on your policy. But, you know, there still is, I guess, you know, permissibility that you could have some type of general reserve if you feel it's necessary. So is it fair to say that collectability issues under 842 are more problematic than under 840? Yeah, they are. I would say they're definitely problematic and more punitive for sure because they do kind of delay recognition of lease income which you know doesn't seem like that you know revolutionary of a concept but yeah compared to the old leasing guidance for sure it's definitely more punitive under 842. Okay so now the question I was trying to get to earlier number five on the list variable lease payments. I know leases often have variable lease payments included in arrangements um, like rent bumps and stuff like that. So how can these impact lessors? Yeah, this has been a, a hot topic for lessors for a while, really since the standard kind of came out. Um, just some issues that they were they were raising early on with the way the guidance was written. But I think maybe to help illustrate this, it'd be helpful just to back up and uh, remind people exactly what is a variable lease payment and how those are accounted for under 842. Um, so the guidance in 842 does constitute what actually qualifies as a lease payment and variable lease payments that are not based on an index or a rate are excluded from what is considered a lease payment. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, people are asking, you know, maybe why does that matter? Um, it's particularly relevant in cases where you do have certain sales type leases. And again, sales type leases are the ones where day one, you're going to recognize that profit or loss. Mm -hmm. um, and either a large portion of the contract or maybe entirely all the lease payments in the contract are variable. Um, under the 842 guidance and definition of a lease payments, those don't, you know, any variable lease payments do not get included in that. So there were situations where there were large variable lease payments in a contract that were causing large day one losses um, for sales type leases. And so that became problematic, I think, for a lot of lessors to wrap their head around. You know, they were just like, economically, this doesn't really make sense yeah. because we know the lease is going to be profitable over the, right. <laughs> the contract yeah, term. Otherwise, we would not be entering into these things. But the way the standard was originally written, um, 
was obviously giving that consequence where there was a large day one loss. So didn't the FASB have a project on their technical agenda to continue to look at this and have they made any progress there? They did, yeah. So this has been, like I said, to no surprise, lessors raised this up as an issue. <laughs> yeah. um, so there was a lot of feedback obviously about how the accounting was working here and that, like I said, like the outcomes of those lease arrangements didn't reflect the true economics of those leases. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so, um, you know, it would technically also like inflate margins later on when you start recognizing all these variable um, lease payments coming in. And so, you know, they was like pushback on the FASB, hey, you guys need to look at this. So the FASB did take issue or take this issue rather and add it to their technical agenda. Um, it kind of went through obviously all the standard process that they go through when they're looking to potentially issue a new standard. And so they actually did just recently issue an updated standard. Um, you know, so it's ASU 2021-05 was recently issued to address this specific issue where you do have significant variable payments in a sales type lease that do cause a day one loss. Mm -hmm. um, and so what that ASU basically states is that if you have a lease that there are predominantly variable payments and it would cause a loss, those leases should be classified as operating leases. Um, and they would no longer be classified as a sales type lease. So you would account for it very similar to how you account for other um, operating leases. Mm -hmm. So variable lease revenue earned and would be recognized you know, over the lease term. You wouldn't de-recognize the leased asset like you would in a sales type lease. You would continue to depreciate that asset yeah. and account for it you know, under the normal guidance in 360. Um, so definitely welcomed relief there for sure. Yeah, sounds like it takes some of that volatility out Let's round out our discussion focusing on the reporting side of things. I know lessees have a significant increase in their disclosures under 842. Julie, what about from a lessor perspective? Yeah, so lessors also had an increased amount of required disclosures. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the primary intent of ASC 842 was to provide users of the financial statements with more information. Mm -hmm. uh, specifically for the lessors, their incremental disclosures was intended to provide more information about their risk mm -hmm. um, that they're exposed to in leases, such as credit risk, um, to provide more information about their residual interest in their leased assets, as well as provide more information about their income from leases. So what are some of the disclosures that lessors have to make? Yeah, so we'll break this up between qualitative and quantitative disclosures. And as we just said, there's more disclosures. So I actually have this written down in my notes here. Um, so from a qualitative perspective, lessors need to disclose any significant accounting judgments and estimates that they used in leases. They would also disclose um, information about the nature of the leases themselves. So think about, you know, what's the nature of the variable payment arrangements? Do you have any termination options, renewal options, purchase options? Uh, also, you know, do you have any information about how the lessor manages their residual asset risk, including information about any residual value guarantees and other means of limiting that risk? Uh, so if you jump over to quantitative disclosures, lessors need to disclose a maturity analysis of any lease receivables if they have sales type and direct financing leases. And if they have any operating leases, they would disclose a maturity analysis of lease payments mm -hmm. for said operating leases. Uh, if they had any operating lease income, they would disclose that, any variable lease income. 
as well as any selling profit or loss that's recognized at lease commencement and interest income for sales type and direct financing leases. So that's a lot for them to disclose. It is quite a bit. <laughs> um, do you guys have any final thoughts that you want to leave our listeners with? So it's we've talked about, you know, lessors don't have as many significant changes under 842 as lessees do. Mm -hmm. However, not everything is the same. Uh, so lessors should still take the time to look through their systems, their processes, internal controls, see what needs to change in order to help them to comply with all the lessor requirements for 842, including the disclosures we just walked through. Yeah, and I would just add, it's one area we didn't necessarily touch on, but just lease modifications mm -hmm. um, kind of in general. So just at a high level, like for those that are familiar with the lessee guidance, um, the lessor modification guidance does not mirror the lessee modification guidance um, under 842, but it really was um, designed to align again here with kind of contract modification guidance that you would see under 606, um, which basically, you know, you account for those those modifications prospectively. And, the, and this is welcome change, I think, because the, you know, previous guidance under 840 for modifications for lessors was a little bit hairy and a lot of people get a little bit lost in the complexities there. So mm -hmm. hopefully this helps align people with the concept that they're already familiar with in 606. Um, but I really only mentioned this too, because, you know, we touched on one area where the FASBs provided relief um, related to variable lease payments, but there's also another um, project on their technical agenda related to lease modifications. Mm -hmm. And it's actually them looking more holistically now at lease modification framework in 842. Um, and so what will come of that, what they'll do with it, um, what are those changes, if any, will be lessee, lessor, or both, um, you know, time will tell. But it's, I think it just helps illustrate is that there's been a lot of changes in the standard since the original standard was issued. And a lot of it's in response to feedback, um, roundtables that have been held by the FASB, just soliciting um, from preparers and the like, you know, hey, where are there areas that we can make targeted improvements to the standard itself? Um, and, and this is another area where that is the case. So if you you operate a lot in the lease space, just, you know, for sure keep an eye on what the FASB is doing because I think there's going to continue to be, you know, changes and for the good changes um, to help, you know, drive home the intent of the new lease standard. All right. Well, I think that's a great place for us to stop today. And I think some words of wisdom for all of our lessors out there, based on all those changes that are coming, check the date of what you are referring to. <laughs> Don't just think you have the most updated um, yep. piece of guidance or blog posts or all those <laughs> things. So um, we would love to connect with you if you have any questions or want to know more about today's discussion. There are links to all of Embark's social media platforms in the show notes, and you can reach out to us with questions on the platform of your choosing. Thanks, Julie, for braving the microphone and joining Adam and I today. Of course. <laughs> and thank you, listeners, for following along on another episode of Accounting Matters. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.